Well, imagine a number of you remember, you saw the movie years ago, Cool Hand Luke, with uh, Paul Newman. You remember, remember Paul Newman's character, his name was Luke, and he, there's a scene in there in which he challenges George Kennedy's character, Dragline, to a fight. Well, Dragline pummels Luke, and he's just having a great time, knocks him down, Luke gets up, knocks him down again, everyone's having fun, the pris- there are prisoners around, they're, they're all prisoners, and they got a circle, and they're just just having a good, good laugh over this. But Luke keeps standing up. No matter how many times he's knocked down, he, he takes another wild swing, right line, knocks him down again, gets back up. And finally, as he, he just swings wildly again, he's falling over, Dragline just picks him up over his shoulder and takes him into the prison barracks. The show is over. Luke's persistence does not prove that he's a better fighter, but it proves that he has the stronger spirit. But even cool hand Luke would have met his match with the Apostle Paul, who we're going to look at this morning. I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 23. While you're turning there, let's kind of Catch up with what's been going on. Paul and Barnabas have gone on a missions trip. They've been sent on a missions trip by uh, their home church, Antioch. They first sailed to the island of Cyrus, and they they had a successful trip there. They go all the way through the island, uh, they're sharing the gospel. They even convert uh, the Roman proconsul, the, the one who's governing the island. They then sailed northward of Cyrus to Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. Once they get there, they travel up to further north up to another city named Antioch. And at first, they're having success with both the, the Jews and the Gentiles coming to faith after Paul preaches. But then there's persecution, enough so that they are driven actually out of the district altogether. And they had to go into another district called um, uh, Lyconia. They travel there to a town called Iconium. And again, there's, there's success. There's conversions. And then following the conversions, it's persecution. And they finally have to escape out of the city when they learn of a plan to stone them. Now they come into the city of Lystrum, and that's where we pick up in our passage, in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up. And began walking. And the crowd saw what Paul had done. They lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The Greeks, I mean, sorry, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus 
His temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Paul, Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. Now, in the language of Cool Hand Luke, what we have in this episode is a failure to communicate. It began with Paul and his healing of the, the lame uh, in, his, in his healing. He first failed to communicate. Then the Lystrians, they weren't getting themselves across because they were speaking in a different language. And finally, when we go back to Paul and Barnabas, we'll see that they still have trouble communicating. So let's start, first of all, with Paul. You know, as I was reading this, I noted how similar Paul's healing of the lame man is to Peter's healing of a lame man back in chapter 3. You might remember that. Okay, there were two distinct differences between these healings. First, and most important here, is the context. Remember, Peter healed a fellow Jew at the temple gate. You know, silver and gold have I none, but in, you know, and then he heals the man. Now, what happens there is that the people are filled with wonder, but neither they nor the lame man were in danger of misunderstanding who gets the glory for the healing. They all know. That goes to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul is healing a, a pagan. don't mean that in a derogatory way, but, but just what it means back then, a pagan who worships pagan gods. He's in a pagan country. Okay. Now, one other thing about this town of Lystra that they've walked into, it's the temple of Zeus. And there's a story that's provided about how well, that would give a different perspective for the Lystrians on what's taking place. There was a story that they would have known about. It's a legend about how the gods Zeus and Hermes once took human form. And they visited a town that did not recognize that they were gods and did not treat them in a hospitable way. And the end result was the town's destruction. Well, The Lystrians are not going to make the same mistake, are they? Here come in two miracle-working strangers into their town. They know how. They know who these men are, that they're really gods, and they are not going to get in danger of not treating them properly. Now, Paul and Barnabas did not know this story, probably. It certainly never occurred to them that this kind of connection would be made. Then there, so there's that difference in context, but there's another important difference that I really can't even account for. 
You know, when Peter looked at his lame man, he said this, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What does Paul say to his lame man? He just says, stand upright on your feet. And I'm puzzled by this. I mean, for an apostle of Jesus Christ, whose whole purpose for being in Lystra is to present Jesus Christ, how he could have omitted those words, I don't know. And, of course, it led to almost disastrous consequences. So there's that failure of of Paul to communicate truly what's going on. Then there's the people of Lystra themselves. Now, their failure of communication is... It's of no fault of their own. They're operating out of their own religious experience and out of their own language. And they might have been bilingual. What that means is that they could speak the common Greek language that was used throughout the Roman Empire. But then they would naturally fall back to their native tongue for their native religion. And that's what's happening. They're speaking in Lyconian. And Paul and Barnabas, they don't understand Lyconian. And so they're late in catching on what is happening. Okay. So now we go back to, to, to Paul and, and Barnabas. Okay, so they, they finally catch on. They've got to act quickly. So what do they say? Well, first of all, they say the right thing. They, they protest. Hey, we're just human beings like you are, okay? Now, that's the right thing to say. But again, so the next words that just don't, don't quite seem to fit in, at least for Paul. He says this. He says, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Okay, you can see where he's going. They're going to, they're going to address idolatry. Okay. And this is what's actually happening at that very moment. The Lystrians are committing idolatry. But then they don't. They don't quite get there. Because here's, here's what they now say. They start to kind of go in this digressing. In past generations, he, God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God has been patient. Look, he's been allowing you to live the way that you are living right now. Then what you expect him to say is something like this. But now those times are over. Now you need to be preparing for judgment. But our good news is this, that God has provided the means of being saved from judgment. Instead, what Paul talks about is God's common grace. He takes time to highlight how God has been good to them. Now, I don't have any doubt that Paul intended to say more. Perhaps there's a little bit more that he, he says this says here, but this is the gist of what Luke gives to us. This is what he's saying is the main message. So no wonder they're having trouble getting through to their hearers because they have failed to emphasize the danger to the Lystrians of their idolatry. The only danger right now that the Lystrians are worried about 
is they're failing to give worship to Zeus and Hermes. Okay? That's what's on their minds. And Paul just doesn't quite get there. Again, undoubtedly he planned to say more. But then what happens, we're about to find out, is that those who had ran him out of the last two towns have finally caught up with him. And they come to the city, and they're able to rouse up, evidently without too much trouble, the same crowd that were treating these men as gods. So let's pick that back up in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. You know, Paul just can't seem to win. Persecution meets him everywhere. I mean, he starts in, everybody likes him, they're hearing his message. But then he's, he's run out of his first city. The second one, he has to escape before he's stoned. And then the third one, he actually is stoned. I mean, shouldn't Paul finally conclude, maybe it's time to go home? You know, things are just not working out the way I planned. Well, he does return home, but not without making some surprising stops. Picking back up in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, this is in Derby, okay, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Well, finally, Paul gets to a city where he's not stoned. You know, he goes to Derby and they don't attack him. But what he could have done, see, he'd gone up north a little bit of ways. Now he's moving but east, he's moving back in the direction of actually his hometown of Tarsus and then back to his, his home church of Antioch there. He could have just gone back. That actually would have been the faster route for him. He does not have to retrace his steps, and yet he does. He walks back to Lystra, then to Iconium, then Antioch, the Antioch that's in that other district of Pisidian. Now, he's not doing the same type of evangelism. He's not evidently going out on the streets again and just preaching. But he is also, he's not sneaking through, okay? He and Barnabas have returned to strengthen the churches that were founded in their previous work. Indeed, by their actions, it's clear what they're doing. They are establishing church structures, They're appointing a governing body of elders. They're holding services of commissioning. It's after that that they then sail back to home in the city of Antioch and they give their mission report. Now, I want us to consider three lessons from this first mission trip. Now, first of all is the importance of church planting. 
You know, you could actually call the book of Acts as the book of planting churches. Is it about the, the church being spread? I mean, about the gospel being spread? Well, yes. Is it about fulfilling Jesus' commission to make disciples to the ends of the earth? Yes. Is it about saving souls? Yes. But all of this is in the context of planting and then building up local churches. You see, that's why Paul and Barnabas went back through the very towns that had threatened their lives. They had not completed their work of establishing churches for the new disciples that they had won to the gospel. And this fact alone should teach us all the importance of, a local, of the local church, of our belonging to one, of our actively supporting it. Can one be a Christian without joining a church? Can one still worship God and serve God? Well, those are the wrong questions to be asking. I mean, given all of the teaching, all of the examples about the significance of the local church in the New Testament, why would anyone professing to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, defend why he or she ought to stay away from a local church? And this example should also impress on the local church that its mission priority should be on planting other churches, both locally and globally. There are many worthy evangelistic, worthy ministry causes, and, and they ought to be included in mission support. But priority needs to be placed on seeing churches established. That's what it was in the book of Acts. That's what it was for Paul. That is, no doubt, was the command and everyone's understanding for Jesus when he gave the Great Commission. So, yes, church planting is, is critical. But one thing that church planters will attest is another lesson for us. It is difficult, difficult work, especially in different cultures. Now, up to the time of Lystra, Paul and Barnabas had an effective evangelistic strategy. It was this. Find the local Jewish synagogue. Remember, there are Jews exiled throughout all the Mediterranean. Go there. You're going to be given an opportunity to speak. And they knew what to say. Place the message of Jesus and the gospel in the context of the Jewish scriptures, what, what we refer to as the Old Testament. I mean, after all, that is actually the best place for understanding Jesus, who he is as the Messiah. It's the best way to understand the gospel, how it makes atonement for sin. Now, they had another thought, undoubtedly. See, besides reaching Jews, they knew that there would be another group of people in those synagogues. And they would be Gentile God-fearers. Those who were Gentiles who yet believed in the Jewish God, and attended services there. Now, through these Gentile God-fearers, well, now they can reach out to the greater Gentile community. And, it's, and it was working. They may have had the same plan for, for Lystra, but Paul missed steps by the way he had done that healing. 
He had not considered the context, and as a result, chaos ensued. So here's the lesson for us. We need to make the effort to know the culture to whom we are communicating the gospel to. That's why missionaries to other countries, they understand this, and they'll take time not merely to learn the language, but to understand the culture of the people group that they are trying to reach. But this lesson also applies to us in the very country, even in the very community that we live. Because we have to recognize that the culture in which, in which we were born, in which we were raised, it has changed. Okay. You know where this has struck me of all places? Watching Jeopardy. Watching Jeopardy. You know, occasionally, they'll throw in a Bible category. You know, and there, I don't know if you've ever seen when, when they'll do that. And it's curious to watch these people who know all kinds of obscure stuff that can't begin to know. And they can't answer the easiest questions that are in the Bible category. Now, now why? They never grew up in church. It's not part of their culture. Never, they never read the Bible. Okay? It's different now. Church culture is a foreign culture to the folks in Jeopardy and to now most people in our society. I mean, most people still acknowledge a God, but it's, it's in the way that the desiderata, do you, do you remember that years ago, go your way into the universe or something and worship the God in whatever way you conceive him to be? That's everyone's definition of God. How I conceive him or her or it, whatever it may be. They dislike the God of Scripture. Much of it just because they're confused about what they understand the God of Scripture to be. And they consider the good news, what we hold as the good news of the gospel, to be outright offensive. Because it runs diametrically opposed to their worldview and to their view of themselves. To put it simply, this they, folks out there, and we talk different languages and we live in different cultures. And so, for us to communicate the gospel effectively to them, we must take the time to understand them. Understand their way of thinking, their, their way of life. I'll give one positive example of someone who, who does this, of speaking the gospel to the non-Christian American culture. Many of you, I know in your Bible studies and Sunday school classes, you're familiar with uh, Tim Keller. And probably his book, Reason for God, and other books that he's, he's written. And if you'll take time to look at it, and you'll see the strategy that he does this. He addresses questions that the people out there, the secular critics, are raising against the Christian faith. But the way that he does it, and the way that he answers them, is not by himself just saying, well, here are my answers. He'll turn to writers, artists, and scientists, who either unknowingly because they're not believers themselves, they still are presenting a Christian worldview or they're actually directly answering the arguments of their fellow skeptics. 
So he's, he's consciously communicating the gospel in the language and through the accepted sources, you might say, that the people he's trying to reach would understand and accept. Or I could think of others, uh, friends that I have, African-American urban church planters. I think of my friends in Camden, New Jersey, and they're communicating the gospel in the language and forms that their neighborhoods understand. You know, I used to be on a, on, on a board um, related to that, and, and the board members would be talking, and every few minutes they'd have to stop, and one of them would actually have to translate to me what they have just said. I just couldn't understand the language. But they are taking that language, and they are communicating with their folks out there in their neighborhoods who can understand it and receive it. So there's the importance of church planting. There is the importance of understanding that even we now, whoever we're communicating to, we're doing it in a cross-cultural situation. And then finally, there is this perspective that's presented here by the apostles on persecution and suffering. Church planning is difficult work, much of the reason because of confusion, because we're trying to communicate the gospel to a culture who does not understand, definitely does not accept the worldview of the gospel. And what that often leads to is persecution. Now, the response to Paul and Barnabas, I mean, you think about this, was not a mere scratching of the head. I mean, they weren't listening to Paul and Barnabas and saying, oh, this is tough stuff to get my, my head around. They're listening, and now they're growing angry, so angry that they're trying to kill these men for, for saying what they're saying. You know, we're not just told that, you know, first, you know, there was the Jews that were there, and then, then the Gentile citizens, they found it offensive. But, but again, they're so built up in a rage. Now, what causes that rage? Well, we're not told. But it's not too hard to make conjectures because of our own situation that we're living in now. I mean, think about this. To accept the good news of salvation, what does it require? Well, it would require someone to accept the judgment that he is a sinner deserving of condemnation. Most people I know don't take kindly to that kind of evaluation. And if we start to say, well, we have a God who is holy, well, they think, well, you just got a God who's mean-spirited. Or again, to, to accept the good news of salvation requires that a person has to accept this evaluation of himself or herself to be helpless. You know, you can't, even, you can't do anything about it to save yourself. You, you can't even do anything to prove yourself worthy of being saved. And again, that kind of message does not bode well in a culture that preaches from the day we are born but we got to believe in who? Ourselves. Or again, to, to accept the good news of salvation requires that one has to believe in a divine 
set standard of morals that everyone must live by. Now, that message sets off for, for anyone outside of this, kind of like in large neon signs, intolerant, intolerant. And so, as we see what's happening in our own American culture, it's the followers of Christ who adhere to his demands for obedience, who are increasingly starting to come under persecution that did not exist, certainly 50 years ago, or 30, maybe even 20 years ago. It might be a mild patronizing form that most of us have experienced at some time or another. You know, our, our neighbors or our colleagues or fellow students, they kind of found us, they thought we were odd or naive, and they kind of pat us on the head but it's now turning to things like losing your job, lawsuits, zoning restrictions, public ridicule, public condemnation. And I think it's evident that persecution is likely to grow in our American culture. Now, we're not facing what our brothers and sisters face in other countries, where, at least not now, where they're imprisoned, Church buildings are destroyed. Believers are killed for nothing more than just expressing faith in their Lord. But we're certainly moving in the direction to where at least our children, our grandchildren can expect to be ostracized, to be denied jobs, uh, to be even punished in some way for remaining faithful and obedient to their Lord. That's what's before us. And yet, what we are to remember, what this passage is bringing out for us, it's out of those same conditions that the church was born and grew in a very healthy way. It was under conditions of persecution that the gospel flourished. They flourished through Christians who met persecution with persistence who were undaunted by the conflict leveled at them. It flourished through Christians who were transformed by the love of Christ and who therefore communicated that love to the very neighbors who were persecuting them. It flourished through Christians who, when they considered the sufferings of their Savior, they considered their own suffering for Christ as a privilege, even as a joy, because they were sharing in the sufferings of their Lord and Savior. The gospel flourished through Christians who trusted their Lord to be working all things for their good, who believed that nothing, no suffering, not even death, could separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christians will be persecuted. They'll be persecuted for professing and following the gospel of their Lord. And yet, through the wisdom of God, that very persecution will be used to demonstrate the genuineness of the gospel. Now, should there be anyone here who's been held back from professing faith in Christ for this very reason? You're fearful, you, you don't want to be ridiculed, you don't want to be rejected. And so you're fearful to to, to make a profession of Christ. You need to consider what you're giving up. 
You give up the inheritance of eternal life in glory. And then you give up even now the joy that was possessed by Paul and Barnabas and by all who received the message. It's a joy that possesses, possesses those who know the Lord, who knows the Lord who has saved them, who know the Lord who loves them. Ultimately, knowing Christ is not just about fire insurance. It's about joy. And it's about peace that takes the believer through whatever trial, whatever suffering and persecution that might come. Let's pray. We thank you, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him is willing to endure all means of suffering and persecution, endure even the cross itself. Thank you for these examples of brothers and sisters throughout the ages who've gone before us, willing to endure whatever persecution may come their way because they loved their Lord Jesus. May we have that same spirit in ourselves, that whatever may take place, whatever might come our way, to be faithful, to remain firm to the end, to show the joy that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.